Misty Copeland is a household name. In 2015, she became the first black female to be promoted to principal dancer in American Ballet Theater's 75-year history. But before she danced on the biggest stages of the world, she was allowing dance to color her childhood imagination. I was choreographing in my house or at school, even though I didn't know what choreographing was. I was creating movement and I would force my little sister, I would force my friends, they all hated it, so I'd have to choreograph these dances on myself, but it gave me a voice for the first time. You're listening to Moving Moments, the podcast that explores the dance world's most accomplished and groundbreaking artists. I'm your host, Alicia Graf Mack, Dean and Director of Dance at the Juilliard School. During each episode, you'll hear me talk with some of my closest friends and most trusted colleagues as we sit down to hear about their creative process and how they are changing the dance world on and off the stage. Your fame has gone so far beyond the stage lights of the great theaters of the world. Your light shines so bright and inspires so many, and you are hands down the most well-recognized ballerina of our time. How does that make you feel? It's um, it's not anything I ever wanted or, you know, strove for. And it's an incredibly beautiful opportunity and privilege to be in a position where I have access to speak to audiences that are beyond the the dance world and beyond the ballet world. And I take that very seriously. And I think it's a real opportunity for me to bring others with me. That's really been what I feel like my calling is, you know, beyond being a dancer. It's, it's an incredible privilege to be in this position as a classical dancer, but to have a voice and to have the platforms that I have. This book that I that I wrote, Black Ballerinas, is my proudest book um, to be able to tell, even if it's just snippets of stories of incredibly accomplished Black dancers who have paved the way for me, who will pave the way for future dancers, whose stories need to be told, yours included. I feel like it's all of us doing this work. Beautifully stated. I'm in my office at Juilliard and I have your book right here oh. on, my, <laughs> on my shelf. In preparing for this interview, I was really overtaken and moved by your journey. I feel like I've followed your career as your contemporary and as your friend and sister in dance, but I haven't actually gone to your website, which is so comprehensive. I started looking at photos from when you were young, uh, when you first started training at American Ballet Theater, and I think your first years in studio company, which is the junior company of American Ballet Theater. And I was really struck by the fire in your eyes <laughs> in those photos. You can see the drive. You're yearning to do this thing. Where does that drive and grit come from? I think it takes a certain type of person, and not just to, you know, I think everyone should experience the beauty of art and beauty of dance, but to stick with it and to get to the level of being with an elite company, to, to being a professional dancer. I think it takes a certain something. I think that you have to want to do it more than just for the applause, for the accolades, um, or even for yourself, but for a deeper purpose. And since I was a, a young person, I didn't have a lot of structure in my life. 
growing up in a single parent home. Ballet, I, I think I was craving that type of discipline and structure and something that was going to challenge me and push me in a way that worked for me. That's why I think it's so important for dance and the arts to be a part of our education system. I think it's so vital. It's equally as important as, as any subject matter that you would study in school. And it took the arts and it took dance to unleash that fire <laughs> that you're talking about <laughs> and unleash that spirit of wanting to work beyond what some people may think is, you know, normal, um, to push yourself physically, to push yourself emotionally and artistically. I think that it was just something that I needed, something that has allowed me to become confident enough to be able to speak and articulate myself verbally. I was not this way before dance. And even throughout my career, like it's something that has progressed, but it's because I've uh, developed the tools by being a performer, by being uh, a part of an art form where you have mentors in your life and people who are encouraging you and helping you to develop other skills, life skills that will carry you beyond the stage. I'm just imagining you dancing in your home, on the street with your friends. What did dance do for you inside, even before training and making it a more formal or professional aspiration? Yeah, I love this question. I think a lot of Black families experience this, like music and dance are such a vital part of our communication and love and ways of expressing all of those things. And it's, it certainly was that way in my household. We didn't have a lot. It was a lot of uncertainty and, and instability. And I'd say the one like saving grace for me and the one really consistent way that we communicated as a family was through music. Mm. Uh, so music was always playing in, in, in my house, whether it was, you know, R&B, soul, you know, hip hop. That was how we communicated with each other. But I would say I can really pinpoint like the age of seven when I started to to listen to and absorb the lyrics I was hearing mm -hmm. and apply them to how I was feeling. Huh. And that was before ballet came into my life. It was the first time that I found a way of being in touch with the, my emotions and things I was feeling. And, and I expressed it through movement, mm -hmm. though it wasn't from an organized activity because I didn't start training in ballet until I was 13. Mm -hmm. um, I was choreographing in my house or at school, even though I didn't know what choreographing was, <laughs> I was creating movement. Then I would force my little sister. I would force my friends. They all hated <laughs> it. So I'd have to choreograph these dances on myself. But it gave me a voice for the first mm. time. I was so quiet as a child. My nickname was Mouse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the fourth of six children, you know, buried in the chaos of my family. But it gave me a voice. It gave me purpose. And then once I discovered ballet, it all just clicked and, and I just blossomed. Mm. That's so beautiful. And it, it reminds me of something I say often as someone who is now in a leadership role and a teaching role and a mentorship role, there are some dancers that you meet that you see, they just have it, <laughs> right? They have this ability to communicate. It might not be in a sophisticated or technically brilliant way yet, but you see that they have 
the underpinnings Mm -hmm. of what is necessary to make the magic as a dancer. And it sounds like for you, that need to communicate somehow, if it didn't come naturally with words, it came naturally through your body. I mean, again, I just feel like you get to a certain level and and you have to have that something more to keep going. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been 20 plus years now that I've been in the in American Ballet Theater. And I think to keep going and have the perseverance, I think you have to have something beyond being a technically brilliant dancer. I think you have to have that that deep fire that mm-hmm. didn't, you know that makes people want to come see you perform, but also makes you want to continue to perform. Absolutely. There's something so magical and fleeting about performing, especially when all is in flow. I call it spirit in motion. What do you call that feeling, that high? Gosh, I love what you, I love the words you use to describe (laughs) it. For me, it's like, time stands still and things just connect. When I get on stage, even before like preparing to go on stage, there's no thoughts of who's in the audience. There's no thought of what I'm going to do after. It's like you just, you enter this beautiful trance where I feel like I'm at my most relaxed, but most alive. Hmm. Again, it's like all these things just kind of connect. And no matter how tired I am, and I know you know this feeling from being a performer too, (laughs) no matter how tired you are, you get on stage and something just clicks and you just kind of like ride that wave. Mm -hmm. And yeah. (laughs) I I think that's one of the reasons that we work so hard too, because it doesn't always happen, especially when you're performing often. Right. And so you're always in process to try to reach that place right again and again and there's something so beautiful about that journey and i i think if we didn't love that journey and that process then we we wouldn't be a part of it mm, that's the grit yep that's the gritty yeah. part <laughs> <laughs> doing your plies and tondus for the 1 millionth time day in and day out <laughs> day in and day out was there any one time that you can think of when you felt you couldn't sustain your creative energy? That's a good question. There have been few times when I feel like outside noise has, you know, gotten in or an injury is so severe Mm -hmm. that I can't be at the level that I want to be creatively. But it's incredible to be in a position where you're you're seen by so many and you're really put out there. But at the same time, it can be a double-edged sword. Those are the few times when I feel like I've been kind of knocked off my center point um, is whenever I've allowed that to happen, the outside noise to creep in. But it's human nature. And I, and I don't think that it's something that you can um, realistically avoid altogether. But just having those doubts and, and feelings. And it's been consistently having, first of all, like the Black dance community Mm -hmm. as an incredible support, Mm -hmm. um, as well as just like the mentors in my life that have kept me focused and on point, (laughs) on point, so to say. (laughs) I understand the importance of having that. And so that's why it's important for me to give back to the youth and to our community. We all have to be there for one another. And I think it's so easy when 
uh, when you're in a position where there's so few opportunities for us that we end up competing and we end up being pinned against one another. And I think it's so important that we stay connected and we stay supportive of one another. And I hope that when one door opens for one of us, that it makes it that much easier for the next to come along. Yes, absolutely. I say that all the time. It seems like in the public eye, there can only be one. Mm -hmm. There's only so much you can control in these big institutions. Of course, mm -hmm. like it's amazing to be on, on boards and for myself and to have a voice inside. But I think it's also important for us to be open to carrying others with us and, mm -hmm. and not get caught up in that zone of, of being told like, oh, there can only be one. And so you're fighting just for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speaking of the community, the Black dance community, I remember when you debuted as a Firebird with ABT at the Met in 2016. It was a magical evening, not only because of your dancing, but because your presence on that stage, it brought a completely different demographic of audience to the Met. The entire Black dance community was there to support you as a newly appointed principal ballerina and to support what this moment meant for us, for yeah. all of us. In the days and the, and the weeks uh, leading up to this performance, what was going through your mind? Well, first of all, that evening, I mean, seeing your face there and amongst so many was uh, so powerful. And I can remember it so vividly, like it was yesterday, <laughs> being on that stage afterwards and all coming together and hugging. But leading up to it, that was one of the most difficult seasons, I'd say, of my career for, for different reasons. I think that it was an outer body experience. So many in our community that don't feel accepted in that space of Lincoln Center or the Metropolitan Opera House that felt like one of us is on the stage and so we belong here. And that night was so much bigger than me. Like I came out onto the stage and all of those nerves and everything just went away because it was just a magical evening that was for us. Yes, yes. Can you talk about your journey with injury? and managing injury and how you managed to forge a path forward. The first big injury I had uh, was my, I think maybe my second year in the core. Um, I had a back injury and I was out for a year. Oh, wow. And I think because I started dancing so late and still was learning like what it meant to be a part of the ballet community, mm -hmm. I don't think I understood how much I was missing out on. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until later in my career that I had injuries that I understood how to utilize that time mm -hmm. in a smart way. Again, that first injury, I went home, I, I learned to drive, I got my driver's license. <laughs> I was like hanging out for the first time because, mm -hmm. you know, when you're training in, in dance, there's no time to hang out with friends or go to parties. And so I felt like I was kind of making up for lost time. <laughs> but I missed out on a whole year and I, and I was behind with my colleagues who I came into the company with. Mm -hmm. I'd say my injury that happened around the time of Firebird um, I ended up having a plate screwed into my tibia Oof. with six stress fractures. And 
that was, I think, one of the first times that I really stepped back and I said, how can I learn from this injury and how can I improve? Mm. My goal was to come back, which is crazy thinking about it now, but to come back to the stage and and be better in some way, Mm. even though I was off. I wasn't performing for like eight months recovering from this injury, but it was having people around me and it wasn't just having them come into my life, but seeking support. Mm -hmm. Um, I found my floor bar teacher in that time, Marjorie Lieber. Mm -hmm. Susan Failtill has always been a big part of my life, Mm -hmm. um, who's a huge supporter of the arts. And, you know, so many incredible Black women that were there with me. Raven Wilkinson Mm -hmm. was a huge part of that journey, especially during that injury. I think it's about having support and having belief that that you will get there again. It's like you keep dancing in your mind, even if you physically can't. Mm-hmm. It was working on my port de It was working on things I could control when I couldn't stand and actually dance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I- I've also had a history mm-hmm. with injury. And I learned so much about myself during those yes. periods. As you said, to have a social life. What <laughs> is that? <laughs> what is that? And... To discover your abilities beyond your role as a dancer. Yes, yes. You you said that so beautifully. Uh, Yeah, it forces you to step back. And when things are just going so fast and as a professional, it's like you're on this train and and it's going to stop when you retire. But it's nice to have a moment to check in with yourself and check in with what it is you even want Mm. in your career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then every time you step back onto the stage, it's like, there's a real realization. This is a blessing that I get to be up here. Yeah. You've spoken before about advocating for yourself within the company and how delicate a line you have to toe. This must have taken so much courage, I think in the dance world in particular, to just stand up for yourself. Oh, yes. What was that like and how did you become brave enough to speak on behalf of yourself. I don't think this is something that we talk about openly enough within the dance community, just how important it is for us to advocate for ourselves and how to do that. Mm-hmm. And and I think that often dancers feel like they have to come in in defense of themselves mm-hmm. rather than being open and communicating with our artistic staff and artistic director. And that's something that took me years to learn. Mm -hmm. I'd spent the first, I don't know, five years probably in the company, whenever we'd have our check-in meetings with the artistic staff, when I would go in, it was like, whatever you do, don't cry. It wasn't even, it wasn't even about what I wanted, Mm -hmm. um, you know, be able to bounce back and forth ideas or communicate. It was just like, don't cry you because you know what you want, but you can't say it. And I felt like I didn't deserve to say what I wanted, Mm -hmm. that it was, I was lucky just to be in this place. I'm the only black woman in a company of 80 dancers. Who am I to stand up and say that I deserve anything? Mm -hmm. And it took It took seeing over and over again, being overlooked for roles or kind of being forgotten and having conversations with my now husband, but who is my boyfriend at the time, or having conversations with different mentors in my life that allowed me to kind of step outside of myself and my emotions Mm -hmm. and just kind of be matter of fact. 
it's it's been an evolution of learning how to communicate. But that's what I would say to younger dancers is to kind of step back and understand that you're speaking to another human being who has so many things going on as well mm-hmm. um, and to try and communicate with them as another you know human being. Think of them as your colleague as well. Mm-hmm. With your commercial success, performing with Prince, and writing a best-selling memoir and children's books and creating a documentary and being the face of Under Armour. And I saw on Instagram that you will be the voice of a character on a new animated Disney Junior show called Eureka. That's amazing! (laughs) How did you break into the commercial and entertainment world? This is not something I ever saw for myself. I didn't imagine I would ever write a book or books. Things changed. I would say they started to change around the time that Prince approached me. I know people think would think I'm crazy for saying this, but I thought long and hard about working with him. It it wasn't something that I was like, oh, I need to do this. (laughs) And having conversations with Prince and thinking about it and even having conversations with Olu, with my husband, it was like, this is a chance for so many to see a ballerina to see a brown ballerina um, and that reach and that access mm-hmm. to his audiences, I thought was phenomenal. Absolutely. And, um, and I think that's kind of when things started to shift. And then it was through Prince that I ended up meeting my manager, Gilda. 10 years ago, you, you didn't need a manager. Maybe you were a principal dancer. You'd have a manager, someone who would negotiate your contracts mm-hmm. or get you gigs in other companies. But as a soloist or as a core dancer, at the time, I, I didn't really see a reason for me to have a manager. There was no Instagram then. There was no social media. I wasn't trying to be an influencer or something. You know, I was like, I don't really need a manager, you know, especially someone who doesn't come from the dance world. But it was through Prince that Gilda learned about me. She was at a Christmas mm-hmm. party through someone we both know very well, Vernon Ross, yes. uh, who was talking about me performing at Madison Square Garden with Prince and this black ballerina. And Gilda was like, this is crazy. I'm, you know, I'm pretty involved in the arts. I see performances. How did I not know there was a black ballerina, a soloist at American Ballet Theater? So Mm -hmm. she was so intrigued that she said she wanted to meet me. And she ended up, we ended up doing pro bono work for like a month or so because she was so fascinated. And so that's where we started from. It was never like, oh, you're going to become famous. You're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And you're going to, it was like, Misty, what do you want? And I said, I want to bring ballet to more people. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want it to, to diversify. And that was where Gilt and I started from. And I'd wake up early before ballet class or on Mondays, my one day off, and I'd go to public schools in the Bronx or in Brooklyn and, mm-hmm. and Queens and, and talk to children about ballet mm-hmm. and for them to see a brown girl and talk to them about what's possible for them, no matter what community you come from, like you're not defined by your surroundings. And that's where it all started from. And then all of these things came and it's not what I ever expected. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing that all those, the things that I wanted at the root of working with Gilda, you know, to diversify classical ballet, to bring it to more people, it's being done just through these channels that I never imagined. Uh, I don't know how you keep it all straight, but I still think, I think you're human. And for you, though, I feel like there's no room to slip up. And you're vulnerable to scrutiny both on and off the stage. 
if you make a mistake, the whole world knows, and also because of social media, has an opinion. How do you keep your head up and how do you continue to walk your walk every day? You know, it all comes back always to the people I have around me and the support that I have in, in my life and being able to stay focused and know what is meaningful in my life. And it's a hard thing. I just had a baby, yes. first baby. And, <laughs> and it's even harder now to find that balance. And you know this very well. <laughs> You're two beautiful babies that you have to prioritize mm -hmm. and put those things at the top that, that mean something. And so I think that when it comes to social media, I try and take advantage and use it as a way to communicate, mm -hmm. like the reach that we have through through Instagram in particular to bring dance to more people is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But I feel like I try to use it to have meaningful conversations mm -hmm. or to spark conversations. So it's about being honest all the time. Even if you make a mistake, we're all human mm -hmm. and it's about communicating and opening up a dialogue that may need to be had. Mm. In terms of becoming a mother, as a dancer, we spend so much time honing our bodies as an instrument, making sure that it is in the best shape, that it makes the right shapes, that it does the <laughs> things that we demand it to do. What did it feel like when you became pregnant and your body changed and you no longer had control of what was happening? It's so unbelievable. Having a baby at 39 years old, I think you have a different perspective mm -hmm. and a different outlook maybe mm -hmm. on your body. And I think having gone through so many injuries as well, I have a different appreciation. And so I think maybe if I were younger and in a different place in my career, it might have been a bit more shocking mm -hmm. um, to have such a huge change mm -hmm. in, in my body mm -hmm. when we're so in tune with every little change. Mm -hmm. I feel like I sat back and enjoyed all the changes that Yay. were happening. <laughs> I think that also the timing of COVID, there had been a year and a half, two years of not really being on stage mm -hmm. because of COVID. So I feel like it was a little introduction to what was to come, the changes in my body that happened before I had the baby. <laughs> right. not, not in the shape that I was in when I last was on stage. That's the but, Netflix and chill yeah. body. <laughs> the net, Netflix and chill COVID body that went right. to baby, you know, pregnancy body. But I felt like it was like this beautiful exploration and I'm still exploring this body that's ever-changing. What do you do to let your hair down? What are your guilty pleasures when work is not involved, when you're not writing a book, when you're not in, in, in the spotlight? What do you do to unwind? Travel. Mm. I love to, I, well, cooking. Cooking, I'd say, is like the easy go-to. <laughs> um, that is a way for me to express myself mm. still in some way but it's um and it's and it's artistic but um it's not as physically demanding even though standing up and especially in my pregnancy i had 30 minutes of cooking and i was like i gotta i gotta sit down and get my feet rubbed um, but cooking uh has always been 
uh, a way for me to kind of like escape and reset. I think the the beauty of cooking is that you don't have to follow an exact recipe mm. that you can continue to evolve and change things. But my my go to I, I do a lot of fish, so ah. um, I do like a, a baked salmon, and mm. I make my own marinade with brown sugar and soy sauce and orange juice and oh, that scallions. Sounds good. And, yeah. I'm coming over. <laughs> But I think any way to have a beautiful escape from the, the day in and day outs of, of my life is how I find mm -hmm. peace and, and a way to reset. Misty, I could talk with you for hours. I hope that life feeds you all the goodness that your light brings to the world. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much. It's such, such a beautiful honor. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Moving Moments. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow the show, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up with future episodes, follow us on Instagram at Moving Moments Podcast and visit us at artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist's moving moments.